Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Read on the screen uh, here on this Monday morning, we've got uh, rising interest rates. We've got a slowing economy. Where do you put your money to work in that type of backdrop? Let's check in with Katie Nixon. She is a CIO of Wealth Management at Northern Trust. That is a big, big account for me back in the day when I was an analyst, when I went to Chicago, had to check in with the good friends of Northern Trust, had to get their II vote back in the day, and I'm proud to report that I always did. What's Katie, that? What's the II vote? It's the Institutional Investor Magazine. Oh, that, I see. Yes. Th- yeah, yes. that benchmarked your total wealth in the, uh, and your total worth in the world. And so in Chicago, it was Northern Trust plus a couple of others. All right, Katie, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, what's an investor to do here in a rising interest rate environment, slowing growth economy? It seems like a tough backdrop. Well, good morning. And yes, a very difficult period, certainly for investors, as all periods of transition are. And you noted we're in a period of transition related to some of the macro outlook. We have slowing growth. Um, our perspective is we'll also have slowing inflation as we get towards the middle and the and latter part of this year. Uh, but we're also in a very important transition with respect to monetary policy going from ultra easy to less so. Um, but what we would characterize it as um, tighter, not tight. Uh, we still believe that conditions are going to be, at the end of the day, still quite accommodative, um, mainly because we don't think the Fed's going to be able to go through with all of the rate hikes that are now built into uh, built into market expectations. Do days then like, uh, well, this morning or Friday present a buying opportunity? Because clearly this sell-off is on the back of geopolitical risk. Well, I mean, I think if you look historically, what you see is periods of high volatility typically are, outside of recessions, good time a good time to buy. What I would say, though, and it kind of goes back to one of the um, comments made earlier about cash, you know, investors right now need to go back to their plan and make sure that their plan is right, that it's aligned with their financial goals, that they have the liquidity, that they have cash on hand to fund their goals during periods of volatility. And right now, we see volatility in both the stock and the bond market. So you don't want to be forced to sell your investment-grade bonds, your muni bonds, or your equities under duress. So it's pretty safe to say it's a good strategy to have you know, a year of spending sitting in cash. Sometimes it's an expensive insurance policy, certainly with zero interest rates, it's an expensive insurance policy. But it's worth it during periods like this when you can draw down your cash and avoid having to sell other assets under duress. So my best advice right now is, Go back to your plan. Make sure you have the cash that you might need over the next year because we're certainly going to be in for a period of volatility here. This is becoming consensus. Cash went from trash to king, right? As I pull out my wad of cash. Paul Paul has always been (laughs) bullish cash. But but honestly, Katie, we've seen, um, you know, cash was not favored last year. And it seems that now, I mean, you're talking about it. Goldman Sachs, I mentioned earlier is recommending investors go to uh, a substantial portion of cash. So um, it seems like the right time. Well, I would say we always give that advice, though. We have a goals-based framework where we specifically align clients' financial goals with assets and strategies. So we always recommend having a year of cash um, in portfolios. What I would say, though, is you know it's been a tough call for tactical investors with respect to cash because you're, you know you're getting zero 
um, interest rates, you know with high-level inflation you're getting a deeply negative real rate. So for tactical investors with shorter-term time horizons that aren't aligned against goals, it's been very difficult and challenging to hold cash. All right. So if I'm not in cash, I want to be in equities. I have the courage to be in equities, as Tom Keen would say. Am I looking at the big growth names that have been so good for so long? I'm thinking more than a decade, really. Uh, you know, the Amazons and the Apples have delivered for shareholders. Or do I stick with that cyclical trade um, that's worked so well over the past couple of years? You know, I would say both. Um, and here's the reason. So we, we certainly see economic growth being above trend. Um, for this year. So that would suggest leaning into some of those cyclical areas, including European stocks that have high leverage, high exposure to global growth. That said, though, think about the forward forecast going into 2023 and beyond. Growth is going to come off the boil. And when growth falls you tend, or, or is very slow and sluggish, you tend to see growth stocks outperform. So I would say don't try to time the turn in the cycle. You want to own both. And if you can add an additional layer of sort of quality over both your growth and value stocks, I think those are the kinds of companies that will be able to, to really serve you well during this period of, of excessive volatility and probably slower growth going forward. just want to finally wrap up your thoughts on the Fed because you said you don't think they're going to be able to go through with the, what, um, four or five rate hikes and then reducing the balance sheet. What do you think is going to flip the Fed? Well, I mean, I think the market's right now pricing in somewhere between five and seven rate hikes. Um, we think that's way too aggressive, given given our outlook for where the economy is going and really what the economy is going to look like um, in the next, uh, you know, once we get past sort of the spring and early summer. And I would say, you know, the, the Fed may prefer, may want to raise rates and start normalizing, but the constraint is going to be the yield curve. And what we see right now is 40 basis points. The market's not giving the Fed a lot of wiggle room here to, to raise rates five to seven times. We think maybe the, the Fed's going to go in March. That's that's a Fed accompli. Could be 50, 50 basis points. We hope they do. Right. That will give a strong message to the market that they're they're trying to catch up. Yep. And then they may go a couple more times, um, but we certainly don't think five to seven is in the cards. All right, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your thoughts. Katie Nixon. CIO of Wealth Management at Northern Trust, uh, giving her thoughts on these markets. Again, we have got a sell-off in the markets right today. In the last two years, we've all been, or many of us, many of us have been working from home, learning from home. That's putting a lot of data out there in the cloud. It's putting it outside of the corporate offices, which raises all kinds of cybersecurity issues. Let's get a handle on how that's developing here. David Britton, Global Strategy for Identity and Fraud from the firm Experian at EXPN Trades in London. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us here. What have you guys noticed from your clients in terms of data security, cyber fraud, all those issues? How have they trended over the past couple of years? Yeah, thanks. It's a well. First of all, it's a pleasure to be with you guys again, and, and to share a little bit of the thoughts that we've got, and maybe for a little bit of context, our, our the group that I work within, where I lead strategy, <clears throat> is the identity and fraud group within Experian, as you rightly pointed out, which um, we get access to a lot of interesting insights, uh, and and with this rush to digital, unfortunately, the digital progress has caused a real rush to digital fraud as well and fraud vulnerability, and so we we put out a number of different predictions where we think fraud is moving this year. It includes areas like 
we believe that, you know, we've all been hearing about ransomware. We, we think ransomware attacks are going to increase going forward. Um, and and the, the crime that occurs there is not just the ransom payout. That's the one that everybody is seemingly most concerned about. But there's also data theft issues there. When those fraudsters get in and start to disrupt the, the, the networks, there's a disruption to business. And then there's data theft and compromise, which ultimately leads to a loss of trust. So that's one thing that I think businesses need to be uh, increasingly aware of coming into the new year. How do we... And the next uh, one is... A, yeah. David, well, first of all, Nathan's mom works for you. And uh, we heard that Nathan's mom works from home a lot of the time. So you have workers at home. Are you confident in... Um, your ability to keep things safe, even as not all of your employees are in the office? You know, it's, it, we, we absolutely embrace a, a, what we call a security first philosophy here at Experian. And we, we ensure that the people, the systems and the processes are, are under constant review uh, to ensure that they, they maintain, we maintain a best in class security posture. And we'd spend a lot of time and energy on that. Not really the area of my focus specifically. I'm more focused on some of the, the solutions, the data, the solutions, the technologies we offer to the market. And that's where we see things like uh, along with I, that, I didn't really mean your home. ability yeah. to, to stay safe. I meant all of us, you know, because we're all doing that yeah. right now, David. Um, not me and Paul but or Nathan, but everyone else seems is working from home. And um, there haven't been any massive catastrophes yet. Yeah. I think it speaks to the work that had been done leading up to this, uh, the, the trends around what businesses were investing in to be able to inter in maintain that security, uh, the practices that were being laid out. Uh, they had to be accelerated. We advanced the agenda of what it meant to be digital very quickly over the course of two years, probably 10 years in advance of when they thought they may need them. Um, and and there, so there's a number of different things. And for consumers themselves, uh, there are a couple of other things to consider. One, is around uh, the evolution of the crypto and the crypto scams that are happening. There's, you know, reportedly half a billion dollars in losses reported last year on crypto payment scams. And that goes to uh, sort of a bit appropriate to the topic today, <laughs> appropriate for Valentine's Day is around the romance scams. Right. Uh, where we've seen a lot of uh, an increase over the last year specifically <laughs> in the vulnerability. And as you mentioned, we're all working from home. We're all sort of isolated during the pandemic. Yep. And there's a need to reach out. And so romance scams were, were it was wow. the most profitable year for romance scams uh, last year in the market. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right, David, too short a time. We're going to get you back on. We'll chat. Yeah, about I want to this. talk about Zelle scams with David. Yes. And honestly, about yep. the the, uh, yep. the the solutions they offer consumers. You know, I guess the question here is Omicron as it eases here in many parts of the country, particularly here in New York, it's uh, the infection rate is extraordinarily low, kind of pre um, kind of Omicron levels. The question once again for employers turns back to how do I get people back to work? Do I want to get people back to work? Do people want to come back to the office per se? Uh, it continues to be an issue for corporate America. John Fish, he's the CEO and chairman of Suffolk Construction Company. John, thanks so much for joining us here. What's your take of how this might normalize, i.e., will people come back to the office? Will they work from home? Will they hybrid? What's your take? Well, Matt and Paul, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I want to thank you very much. I do believe it's not if, but it's when. Uh, I think most people want to return to the work once they feel safe. So I think what we need to be doing as a society is really following the data all along. And right now, I think we really are transitioning really from a pandemic to an endemic, and we can see that through the numbers. 
So my sense right now, the average office is about 40 to 50 percent full. I think by the springtime, we're going to be seeing 70 to 80, and hopefully by the summertime, end of the summer, we'll see about 90 percent. But I think at the end of the day, I think that's the direction we're going in right now. I got to push back against that. Um, if I were allowed to work from home, I would never want to come back to the office because I'd be working from home in Montana. Ah, there you, you know? go. Yep. I wouldn't. But now be... you're going to be in Westchester commuting well, now, in. And I love coming here, so don't get me wrong. Um, and I love listening. Westchester and I love Suffolk County. I don't know where you are, John, but um, I, I'm guessing Boston. I think I think most people who can are going to move or the kids, let's say are going to move to some place that's not New York prices and work for a place that is New York salary. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess the answer, and we'll find out. But what are you hearing from business leaders as far as getting people back in? You know, I I think fundamentally in the United States today, in order for us to be competitive globally, we need that energy. We need that cultural impetus to drive our successes at our companies right now. And we saw the experiment with education. Education really was a failed experiment. I don't think the kids retained or learned uh, much during the last 18 months during this virus itself. And also the impact when we talk about the cities. When you think about service-oriented type of jobs that are really 70% of our economy, they basically shut down in our city areas. And people, the white-collar jobs, were able to work remotely. But at the end of the day, if we don't have thriving cities, we're not going to have a strong economy at the, uh, overall. And lastly, I would say this way, is that when you think about competitive edge, I've never heard of anybody really having to be able to build a culture remotely or mentor remotely or provide a sense of leadership remotely. And pro- probably most importantly, how do people get promoted remotely? And I'm not saying people cannot work remotely, but I'm saying generally speaking, in order for this uh, our society to continue going forward in a productive, equal way. We need our cities and our offices to come back to full health. You know, I see a lot of, you know, on TV and things when I see, you know, stories about coming back to the office. I see a lot of offices have the, the plastic dividers up between desks. Have you seen that around? What, what, are you, what are you seeing in some of your buildings, some of your clients? You know, Matt, what it's really about is I think over the last 10 years, as we know, cities have grown quite a bit, about 10% over the last 10 years. And this for office space grew quite a bit, and it became very expensive. So what people did is they took the average square foot allocation per person from probably about 175 down to 125. Some even went below 100 square feet. I think what we're going to see now with the Omicron virus subsiding, I think people coming back to work, and the, that square footage figure is probably going to move back to that 150 to 200 square foot range. So at the end of the day, in the next two to three years, I do think the office market will move back to where it originally was. It will set res- uh, the uh, resiliency, and I think people will want to come back to work with each other. I wonder about travel between, you know, along the eastern seaboard. You are obviously um we hear a little boston there and uh, i think <laughs> you're rated one of the 100 most important people in boston 100 most influential people in boston by boston magazine you also sit on the uh, executive committee of the real estate board of new york so you're up and down the eastern seaboard is the mobility what you want to see right now you know, it's, it, again, I'm going to go back to this issue of safety. Going to the airports right now, I think you look at their protocols that have been put in place, and I believe it is safe for people to travel today, especially on airlines. You take a look at the, how they've improved the HVA system on these planes. It's never been as strong as it has been right now. 
But at the end of the day, what we are seeing is we're dealing with an endemic right now. The numbers and the data show the thing, the virus is subsiding, and we are getting close, hopefully, to what we call herd immunity. At the end of the day, if we can achieve that, I think we're all back in business. And I think at the end of the day, in a competitive society, especially in globalization, we have to be with each other. Totally agree. I just want to wonder what you want to see beyond it. I mean, Paul and I, we're done with the pandemic. So what's next? To me, I think a sense of normalcy. I think what people want to be, they want to be with their families with a sense of confidence and comfort. They want to be with their workers in work and having that social experience. At the end of the day, we all think about building our personal and professional balance sheets. We can't build our personal balance sheet or our professional balance sheet working remotely in isolation. And I think the whole issue of the school experience nationally proved that out. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting some of your time here. John Fish, CEO and chairman of Suffolk Construction Company, getting a little sense of kind of what the new normal might look like for back to work. Um, you know, it's it's interesting here in New York City, you, have the, you cannot get an apartment. There's not any vacancies for apartments. But I don't know where the people Maybe are they're going to Hoboken. Day. Do the kids still go to Hoboken? They do. but yeah. yeah, they do. But I mean, but they're not going to the offices. That's really odd. One of the topics that Matt and I like to discuss is the supply chain issue, which has become such an economic headwind on a global scale as, as a one of the fallouts from this pandemic. And when we do that, we often talk about some of the big, big companies, whether it's a big box retailer like Walmart or a big transportation company like some of the railroads. But I'm going to go at it from the angle of some smaller, newer businesses, and our next guest can help us talk about that. Laura Modi, CEO and co-founder of Bobby. Bobby is a baby formula delivery startup that sells direct-to-consumer and offers a subscription service to parents across the United States. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your business, getting stuff, delivering stuff. How are you dealing with what has been you know, a supply chain challenge for so many sectors of this economy? Yeah, delighted to be chatting with you guys again. Look, I mean, there's global supply chain issues in every industry, but I think we're we're seeing it and the anxiety around infant formula, it is it's at an all time high. And it is because if there's any product that you shouldn't be running out of, I mean infant formula is one of those. So what we offer is we're a direct to consumer infant formula delivery service. Bobby is one of the first organic clean infant formulas on the market in the last six years, and we get the product wherever you are to your door. Like when you do look at why is there a shortage, the consumer behavior is rapidly changing and it's changing in the way they shop, where they shop, the quantity at which they're buying. And because of that, retailers are just not quick enough to be able to respond. But online we are. Last quarter in Q4 of last year, we saw a 180% increase in our subscriptions because parents want the security in getting their formula. Well, and because it's difficult to get the kind of formula that you offer in this country. As you know, we've spoken before. Um, I just moved over here from Berlin, and uh, the, the formula that um, everybody on Park Avenue wants is <laughs> is only available in Europe, it seems. So why is that? Why ha- um, have you been the first person to fill this um, gap? You know, why didn't anybody else see the problem and shoot in first? Well, first, I mean, Berlin 
Germany is the birthplace of high-quality infant formula and in many ways was the inspiration to getting Bobby off the ground. I would say many people noticed it. And, you know, as a tired, exhausted mom, it's the first thing you see, which is why are we turning to a black market for European infant formula? Why are we not able to get high-quality infant formula here? Now, it would be remiss to not say that this wasn't a journey. It takes a long time to essentially redesign an infant formula, find the suppliers of choice, and then get it approved here in the U.S. So we went on a three-year journey just to get the FDA green light to launch our formula. This is not a pantry product. You can't just enter the market easily. It takes a lot of rigor, a lot of quality, and we're very fortunate to have By the way, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, <laughs> but when I think of the importance of uh, formula and uh, nutrition for um, infants and children, it always reminds me of there was a Freakonomics in the first book when they talk about changes made in the 70s led to drops in crime rates in the 90s. And I always think about the importance of feeding our children well, nutritionally, um, is up there with like giving them love, right? In terms of creating better citizens when they're 18, you know, and we don't, and we 100%. have a real problem with that. I think um, in this country, uh, Laura, I don't know if you've noticed it because uh, judging by your accent, you didn't grow up here, but <laughs> it, it could make such a big difference. Um, what do you do for the, to help the underserved or the uh, underprivileged people who can't afford good formula? Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think we forget as well that infant formula is the first food that a baby is going to consume. So why is it that the first ingredient is corn syrup? We're not setting them up for success. We need to make sure that the nutrients and the ingredients in this product do set them up for success at an adolescent, as an adult. Um, so for the underserved, I mean, this is really, really important for us that the affordability and access to high quality formulas out there for everyone We've made a commitment that for every can purchase, it equals a feed to a baby. And we've made many different partnerships with those underserved communities like Brilliant Detroit, where we're giving Bobby back to make sure it is accessed by everyone. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we always appreciate getting your perspective on the day-to-day -day small business in America, dealing with some of the challenges of growth and supply chain. Laura Modi, CEO and co-founder of the firm Bobby, which provides baby formula delivery. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.